0: Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com/packet-pushers to find out more.
1: Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. And if you got something cool working with v6, we want to hear from you. So come join us on the, on the v6 buzz. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host, Tom Coffey, and Scott Hogan. And today we're going to be talking about Merit Network's IPv6 readiness program with our guest, Lola Kelly. Uh, from Merit. So let's jump in and start off with some questions, which I guess is for most of our audience, they may not know who Merit Networks actually is. So Lola, welcome to the show and what's Merit all about?
2: Okay, great. Thank you for having me here. Um, well, Merit Network is a nonprofit corporation in the state of Michigan that runs one of uh research and education network and there are many around the country and they're all uh, joined by a membership called QUILT. But MERIT acts as an internet service provider for 12 of Michigan's uh, public universities and they are also MERIT's governing members. Um, Besides the public universities, MERIT has over 350 additional nonprofits in Michigan that consist of K through 12, other higher ed institutions, libraries, Government agencies, healthcare organizations, tribal nations, and others. And so, it's been uh, in existence for over 55 years and going strong.
1: Yeah, I, I think merit is a sort of interesting. I don't know if there's an analogy for other other states that do something similar. I, I think Scott, there is. There's there's others that look very similar to merit, but it's um, you guys. You guys are basically are infrastructure right for the state for many of those organizations so oh yes Mm -hmm. so you act as you act as that service provider that isp that that that's how they gain access out to the public internet right in terms of getting access and also to each other right
2: oh yeah and and i should say you know we have over 5,000 miles of fiber infrastructure. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: so it's, a, it's a little yeah. bit bigger than than just uh, you know, oh yeah, we provide some internet connections and, and you're you guys are actually managing infrastructure and actually doing all that work. So,
2: Yes, absolutely. We also are um we have the connection to internet 2 for the state of Michigan. There are many uh research and education uh networks around the country and they're called RENs typically. And I think there's at least over 20, but many of them do represent their state, but some actually represent a larger regions. So it is uh, a well-known kind of entity, a REN in our country. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I think they have the same thing in Utah. I think there's something very similar there, Scott. I remember doing some conferences
4: up there um, with a similar setup yeah connecticut yeah. and others states have oh, similar yeah. type networks that join universities you know um, k-12 through 12, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah research, research institutions yeah it's, it's pretty typical for them
1: to try and and, and it's part it's partially just a it, it, it can be both a cost savings and an efficiency thing right in terms of making it easier for those organizations to interconnect and, and do that so <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: yeah, so theoretically, it, it should be easier to, to s- sort of in, enforce technology standards. I guess that's too strong of a word. Uh, but, but you have some ability to sway the decisions of your members in terms of, of what technologies they're deploying. And of course, you can see where I'm going with this. It's like, so when did, when did IPv6 sort of first crop up on your on your radar, Lola? And, and how, did, how did you get involved with the project to, to sort of um, drive IPv6 readiness among the Merit members?
2: oh well um merit was very involved in um ipv6 um a long time ago but for recently for this this program um back in 2017 Um, Bob Stovall, who's the vice president of uh, strategy and research, uh, took a look at how the uh, Merit's governing members, the 12 uh, higher ed institutions, were um, using and requesting their IPv4 addresses from Merit because Merit provides IPv4 and IPv6 addresses for all of its members. And so he took a look at it and he saw that as if it was trending the way it was That some of the governing members could actually run out of IPV4 addresses in about five years, which would be next year. So um, he, along with uh, Joe, the president of Merit, uh, wrote a proposal to Merit's governing board and asked them uh, and requested that they uh, create a IPv6 adoption program, so that none of their institutions would have any sort of depletion rush or crisis or anything like that. And uh, the board was very enthusiastic and they listened and um, they supported the program with full funding, which was very great. Um, And what that means was that any of their staff members uh, in their 12 institutions could participate in the program for free. And um, whatever the program might offer, it would be funded through merit. Um, So that's how the program got started.
1: There was an obvious need for you folks, because otherwise you have to go out in the public market and buy more IPv4, right? If those institutions can't get V6 adopted, right? It it becomes a a burden on merit in terms of providing v4 or telling them to go fix their space, (laughs) Uh (laughs) which probably doesn't go over very well. But, But, but I mean, so that's the impetus. I mean, what were, what were your specific, sort of I mean, initial goals for the program? How did you guys, you know, sort of, you know, obviously there was a conversation and, and saying like, Hey, we, we have this need requirement, and, and that sort of started it. But did you set out specific goals in the beginning in, in terms of what you wanted to achieve with the program or was, or was that something you were figuring out as you were going?
2: No, we, we had specific goals. Um, we, we wanted, we thought that first train the workforce, you know, because that's base, the basic thing to make sure that everybody really understood IPv6 technology. A lot of these... um guys that were have been working in the higher ed institutions has been, have been there for years and they they were first introduced to ipv6 a long time ago like in early 2000 and so um it's not that they didn't know it existed but it, you know we thought they need to have a refresh on what they understand about ipv6 technology like what's what's available today and so um so and also to uh we wanted to reach um so then after training, we decided we wanted to make sure that every governing member created a, a, a deployment plan. So get trained and develop a plan. And also we needed to teach them how to create their plan. And then the third was to really encourage their advan- the advancement of their adoption and their networks. So we couldn't force anybody to do that and we couldn't actually... Um, give them milestones, but we wanted to encourage them. And so um, that's how, those were the goals of the program. And um, what what we tried to do in terms of strategy was that in the past, so we, we consulted with some experts right in the beginning of, the, of uh, our development. And they said, and I'll, it was like Alan Winery and some other people we talked to in the beginning, um, said, you know, the bottom up approach Uh, which means like talking to network engineers uh, didn't seem to really make, you know, adoption move forward very much, you know, because we heard from them and they they were having their difficulties. So we decided we really from the beginning of the program, we wanted to engage the leadership, the network managers, the, the higher leaders and even the executives Um, in these higher ed institutions to to be part of the program, at least in terms of training and understanding, you know, the risks and opportunities, the risks of not um, deploying IPv6 and the opportunities that were available for their network. So that was um, how we got started in the beginning.
4: Sounds a lot like, you know, the U.S. federal government's approach. You know, let's create some goals. Let's help, you know, let's Let's require departments and agencies to form their team, get a deployment plan, encourage IPv6 adoption, but they can't necessarily force it upon other groups. But I think you made a strong point about training. We've talked about that. You know, many people, like in the federal government, might have learned about IPv6 back in 2005, and then if they didn't put that learning into action, and uh, that those training and that knowledge atrophies over time, if it's not, you know, exercised. So also, you know, things have changed in the last decade about IPv6. We know a lot more, we have a lot more deployment experience. There's a lot more, you know, best, you know, use cases, you know, best common practices. So if you learned about IPv6 now and put it to use now, that would be better. You're reemphasizing, emphasizing You know, you're using that knowledge and actually doing something with it. And you've got a goal and a task, you know, which is connect our university to merit over IPV6 and then start to bring it further down into the campus network. Yeah, I think
1: I think most important is you learn what not to do from all our mistakes, <laughs> right? <Scott? laughs>
3: yeah, exactly. To sort of tag on that, I, I'm I'm curious, Lola, if you had some, you know, a bit of like virtuous cycling, as they say, where some folks in the merit uh, network were already sort of ahead of the curve, and then as you create this program, you're 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 also sort of creating a space where those. The folks that are a little bit ahead and have some some good practice instituted can share that with the the folks who are maybe lagging a little bit behind. Did, did you see did you observe that during the course of the program?
2: Yes, and and uh, thanks for talking about that, Tom. So we we kind of had like this three pronged approach where not just education and guidance, but trying to build a community. And I think that that's what you're you're uh, referring to is that, you know, we did have a lot of people coming into the program um, with diverse uh, experiences and backgrounds. And we had a lot of really interesting voices uh, talk about what they had tried to do so far, what were they doing? And then with people who this was completely new for, they were able to um, draw from their experiences and and a lot of these people knew each other you know a lot you know this is a the higher ed institute the the 12 governing members have had people on their staff for oh decades because you know there there really isn't a lot of turnover in the higher ed um tech net technology you know networking community they 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 tend to like that that you know space. And so they stay there for a long period of time. And so it was nice that, um, of course, they do hire new staff members. And so the new staff members in these places were able to, you know, draw from uh, colleagues from, you know, other universities, like, for example, Wayne State staff would be talking to Michigan State staff or the University of Michigan and and things like that. So the community building was one of the things that we really tried to um, create in the in the program. One of the things that we did actually was we created like these single points of contact and they acted as sort of our ambassadors to each of their uh, universities to draw the staff into the program. And that helped a lot. That helped a lot. But um, I'm going to just jump in and say one of the foundational things that we did in the program that was great was to create an advisory board right off the bat. Bob and I knew that we needed to draw in from the leaders of the field, and that was so great. And I'm happy to say that we're, we have one of them right here with us, which was Scott Hogue. So uh, thank you, Scott. Scott was just an amazing help to the program, um, both uh, in the training and as an advisory board member. But Scott also helped recruit other people to the board for us. And so um, that was very helpful. So I, I guess I what I want to do now is actually acknowledge them and so that people can understand, you know, how IPv6 can really uh, extend beyond, um, you know, di- different areas. So we had Dawn Bedard from Microsoft and what she really represented to us was the industry perspective and how um, a large corporation goes about doing adoption, you know, on a their very extensive Microsoft network. Um, we had Bill Servani, and uh, who presently is uh, at NetScout. But Bill, came, Bill was one of the original trainers way back when when IPv6 was first created, and he he did extensive training. So we we were able to draw on his expertise for that. And um, we had. Um, John O'Brien, uh, he's at the University of Pennsylvania and he represented higher ed and in higher ed perspective about adoption. Uh, Jeff Harrington from NYSERNET. So, NYSERNET is another uh, research and education network. And so, Jeff did a lot of training again and continues to do workshops at uh, Internet2 conferences. And um, so, he's, he was well, he helped us understand how membership how a nonprofit membership would, um, you might want to go about training. And we looked at his training materials in the beginning to get some, some guidance and, uh, learn about what would be needed to train, uh, our membership. And, um, then we had Chip Papavichu, Chip being foundational, uh, global advocacy, a book author, uh, representing both I- industry and training, um, and adoption. And Chip was really foundational and instrumental in, in creating the uh, the um, re- outreach to our executive leadership. He was the one that provided training for executives and um, just did a phenomenal job. We had such uh, positive feedback from the executives on on, on uh, Chip's training. And then, of yeah. course, Alan Winery, who, again, he's another representative of higher ed, uh, how to do adoption in every which way, but Lucy, he, he knows it inside and out, and uh, an advocate. So we had advocates, we had uh, representatives from higher ed, training, industry, and I tell you, I um, Mayor just couldn't have put the program to uh, together with without the the advisory board. Yeah,
1: you have a really good listener and Chips, a, Chips, a good friend, <laughs> and it has yeah. been on the podcast, so it's 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 uh, one. I, I know he's. Does a fantastic job sort of articulating the executive side of like, how's this going to impact you and just really sort of communicating, you know, getting out of the technology circle is just technology for geek's sake. and <laughs> Talking about a protocol versus talking about what impact it can have on your org. He's really good at that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he really is. He he really gives them the larger perspective of how how it, the whole sort of infrastructure of IT, if you, if you look at it from IPv6, how how you can actually have that go out into all aspects of the the network. He he just does a great job. That was really phenomenal. Yeah,
1: yeah that's cool. So you yeah, chip doing that sort of thing. What other sort of program offerings? What else did you guys do within the program itself? I mean, how long did it last? Like, is it still going on? Like. Maybe maybe a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So the program was set for two years. We had we did have a start and end date for that, and um, I'll, we we offered a lot of things. But I'll tell you the the, the there were the. F- Four things. We, we had training classes, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, and we had conference talks. Merritt holds an annual conference each year. So for the two years of the program, we had uh, Chip actually gave one conference presentation, and then John the following year gave a presentation. Um, we had workshops. But um, one of the things I thought was really cool were the quarterly meetings um, where um, and the the second year we had um, meetings where we met each quarter and focused on a particular topic. And so that was, um, it was still kind of training. I call it education. It wasn't a training session, but it was education. And this was where we were able to have these informal discussions and give more guidance about, well, what about this? And what about that? And case studies. So um, those were really popular and very good. And, um, I'm happy to say that the three of the people here talking with me today were uh, speakers and guests at these those quarterly meetings, and they were really dynamite.
1: Yeah, we appreciate, we, we appreciate being able to talk about it. I'm, I'm, well, I guess I'm more appreciative of the fact that you trust us enough to talk about it. <laughs> <So>. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, I who, mean, who's this guy?
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Those were my favorite, actually, the quarterly meetings. Um, like the first one, we had um, Steve Wallace from Indiana University and Dave Hunter, another um, global knock, Indiana University. And they were just fully transparent. They talked for a... A long time about their um, deployment of IPv6 over many many years, and um, that was great. That uh, because it was a higher ed case study, and um, people just really were able to do a deep dive and and what worked and what didn't work. And you know Dave's um, uh, notes were just focus on incremental adoption advances. And I know this is something that Scott. Uh, you've, you were uh, emphasizing all along uh, in your training is just, you know, just do l- one little piece at a time and one little piece and then the next little piece and um, creating an awareness and, and working, you know, towards uh, full adaption is just a long, long-term, you know, march.
4: Yeah. Ch- chip away at it. It doesn't all have to be done right away, but the longer you delay, <laughs> the longer it'll take you to get it deployed. Um, mm-hmm. One of the cool quarterly meetings you had was where you gave you know, you armed the members with kind of a roadmap, a guide. You talked about kind of the benefits, barriers, excuses, myths. You created a a glossary, uh, helped them build their transition team. You know, understand. Um, what a schedule might look like for them. What are the tasks they'll have to go through? You really gave them a lot of artifacts that Mm -hmm. helped them get going.
2: Yes. And yeah, I thought that was really powerful. And I just want to say, Scott, you were um, instrumental in providing much of that material. And um, I thought that was also, I mean, I just can't say each of these quarterly meetings had their different emphasis, but that one was the second one. Where, um, and that was where I felt uh, there had been enough people trained and enough uh, information that they would actually be able to go and do a road, you know, follow a roadmap. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Scott, you gave them information like, okay, step one here, here's what you do. A, B, C, D. And this is how long it's going to take you. (laughs) And I thought, gosh, I could even do that. And I'm not even a network engineer. I can follow. It was like a to-do list and it was really Mm -hmm. great.
4: (laughs) Yeah. The order is, is particularly important. Training first, because if you had done the, the second workshop first, it might have fallen on deaf ears or they wouldn't have been able to put into context or valued the order you were laying out for them or what the what the journey was going to be like. Mm-hmm. Also, one of the quarterly meetings you had were focused on addressing how to get your addressing plan. You know, Tom helped there, but then you also had other universities share their addressing plan and say here's what we did here's an example of another university and so having those board members and those other folks be able to share and speak from experience and say here's how we did it here's an example of how you might want to do it that was really you know demonstrated how how to go about the process that was probably really useful for them
2: yeah it was that was really great and um Tom, you did a great job there. And, you know, I, I think with, um, what Tom was telling them it, I think it helped them to understand this isn't really hard or challenging. I have my notes here, you know, um, from what you taught them, Tom, and it was, you know, first of all, it's, it's not like an IPv4 plan. So throw that thinking away Mm -hmm. (laughs) and start fresh and, um, get a big enough allocation and then you gave them some guidelines on the um you know how to how to lay out a simple plan. That was mm-hmm. just great.
3: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the the folks that got started early, you know, we see this theme pretty often these days. Where, uh, you know, there's a, and especially this is true in the higher ed area where you know there was early interest in IPv6 and and some movement, but some of this dates back almost two decades at this point, or maybe more than that. And uh, it, you you've discovered that a lot of these these folks are using old plans that that don't really account for what's happened with IPv6 in in the last even just in the last 5 years uh, and it and it, it's not as if it, whatever they've done won't work uh, you know technically it will it will work it however you're going to carve up your IPv6 space you you have enough space to make that work but if you if you haven't really thought about it in in a certain way you you run the risk of of really con- unnecessarily constraining yourself within a much smaller allocation than than you have access to that and that you can justify and that uh, that much larger allocation then allows you to lay out things in a, a much more sort of operationally logical fashion and you just really couldn't do that in ipv4 and so yeah trying to carry that message to folks at this at this date especially where you know we've got Kind of an upsurge in enterprise adoption and, and adoption among higher education. I think it's it's critically important. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that there were receptive ears to that, that message.
0: We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Packet Pusher sponsor InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly U.S.-based OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. Interoptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. Interoptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs, and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers, tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com/packet-pushers. That's interoptic.com/packet-pushers. And now, back to the conversation.
2: You know, as I was looking as I was preparing for this, I was looking at how often the program offered, uh, you know, discussions on um, an address plan. And there were many. There were many. And this was kind of the the um, this the uh, this quarterly meeting came after several other times that the uh, address you know an address plan was brought up. One was. Um, Larry Blunk, uh, a senior network engineer at Merritt, gave uh, a workshop at one of the MMC conferences for the members about address planning. And then Scott had covered it in his training. So that's at least number two. And then there could have been. uh, Oh, oh, and then, of course, it got discussed in the case study for uh, Indiana University. And then here the fourth time. And I tell you, just. They, they needed it that many times. And mm-hmm. it was that it was those, those um, precursors to the quarterly meeting were really helpful because I think, you know, as you've uh, talked about, Tom, so often people are so ingrained in their V4 address plan that they almost need to hear it over and over again. And um, I'm happy to report that, uh, when I did the survey, and this is in our program report, that six of the 12 universities uh, redid their address plans oh, as excellent. a result of the program. Yeah, I that's know, so good that's, to hear. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. it was it was like, wow, that was the biggest number. That so it sounded like that was one of the biggest impacts the program had. And hey, if, if that's true, then okay. And um getting back to what Scott said. Um, Two of our institutions, I I wish there had been more, but it could be that they didn't report, created a new uh, deployment plans. So they upgraded their deployment plans as a result of the program. Mm -hmm. And many asked for more IPv6 address space. So we know that the program had an impact. Um, And there's others that I can mention, too. But it was um, the address planning thing was, I think, made the largest impact on people.
4: Like Henry Winkler says, if you don't have time to do it right, you sure as hell don't have time to do it over. So getting it right (laughs) the first time is really important. And so getting that expertise to build the plan, build the address plan, build the deployment schedule, you know, helps them start off on the right foot and avoids rework. Mm hmm. Absolutely. We know all about readdressing with IPv4, <laughs> and you just don't want to have to do readdressing with yeah. IPv6. Uh, you know. <laughs> Wouldn't
2: that be six terrible? Six. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be terrible, <laughs> especially since it's hard enough to get them to do it in the first place. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 then to do it over? Oh, my gosh.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Well, you, you mentioned a little bit about the, some of the impacts in terms of numbers of, uh, uh, and sort of reporting on the program and things like that. I mean, maybe you can give us an idea of sort of like, you know, where things are at for you now and where the program's at and where things are sort of sitting and how you guys are thinking about it. Now that, now that uh, I think the two years is up. So, <laughs> so yeah. it's to sort of look in the rearview mirror a little bit and say like, uh, did we make progress? Did we hit some of the goals that we wanted to? And, you know, was it successful or was it, uh, you know, and how challenging it was and, how challenging it probably continues to be because it's, it's, I'm sure it still comes up as an issue um, for mayor, mm-hmm. but uh, I'd sort of be interested in, I'm sure the audience would be interested in hearing some of that.
2: Yeah. So um, I mentioned some of the uh, impact, the positive impacts of the program. So uh, six upgraded their V6 address plans to, cr- oh, created new institutional wide uh, V6 deployment plans. And um two upgraded their deployment plans. Um, we've got uh, two of them actually started uh, to assess their network. So one of, the, one of the things the guidance documents we created was an assessment document um, that Larry Blunk created. And um, it was how to go about assessing your network. And so they actually could take that and two of them did that. Um, Two of the governing members upgraded their network equipment to be a V6 uh, enabled uh, because we know most of them are capable, but they enabled that. And and we've got some um, couple of them upgraded their security policies to include IPV6. Um, you' right. Yeah. I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> make Scott happy. I don't I don't know where that came from. I, I yeah. don't know who could have imp, imp, influenced any of that.
2: Thank you, Scott, for that. I'm <laughs> sounding the alarm bell, you know. And so it was like, oh, yeah, maybe we should, you know, think about IPv6 security. Um, a few of them are just, you know, again, we've got some baby steps, but they're moving their public facing websites to Cloudflare to make them v6 accessible. And one of the things we did notice, what what we really liked was Bob went back and looked at the um, requests from the governing members on their IPv4 addresses, and so um, the the curve flattened, and that was a very positive thing. We they it, there's no um, concern at this point for depletion, and oh, you know what never got mentioned here, and that is that um, higher ed. Uh, the higher ed institutions, and and in particular Merit's, um, we had a fat, fat, a big trough of IPV4 addresses. We, so, you know, the higher ed institutions really never felt that there was a V4 depletion problem, because, you know, there was so many addresses that Merit had. Um, So, I want to say that going into this, none of the institutions really had, like, um, a concern or a worry, okay? But I think what this program led them to understand is that there are concerns and worries because, um, you know, it's it's the case that we there are other risks involved, and um, not the least of which, really, you know, relying on nat technology and things like that is going to, over time, be you Know really have your network suffer in some regard, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of management or performance. And and so, um, that's that they became aware of those things, and that was very good.
4: Yeah. Um, organizations think, Oh, I've got plenty of IPv4 addresses, I don't need IPv6, but they fail to realize that everyone else they communicate with around the world doesn't. Yeah, it's so, a community, it's, it's a community, you got to talk to everyone, right? <laughs> so, yeah. And so, other people who might have limited v4 that goes through one or more nats on their way to get to you if you it the performance is going to be worse for other people to reach you or reach your content but if you had just turned on ipv6 and been the bigger person and just went ahead and enabled it even though you still have an abundant supply of v 4 good for you then other people could reach you over ipv6 it's just being accessible you don't think about you just think about yourself and you don't think about other people accessing you or communicating with you and what they have to go through to talk to you.
2: Right. Exactly. And um, so we're, you know, where we are right now. So the program ended, uh, you know, in December of of 2019 and um, then of course COVID hit. And this was a huge blow to the higher ed institutions, as it was for many. But but um, what happened was a real um, mixture of things that just uh, really slowed them down. Uh, One was that uh, a lot of people decided to retire. Mm -hmm. And so I you know, when I was sending out my emails to ask people, hey, what's going on? You know, I'm going to be on a podcast. It was like three or four of them had retired. And th- we're talking about like twelve institutions. That's a big percentage of mm-hmm. people. Um, and then other other the tech staff um, realized that if hey virtual work, I can go out and get a, a better job and sit in my sit at home. So there was a lot of staff attrition for the technical like network engineers were leaving the uh, the institutions and going into uh, the private sector. Mm-hmm. So in um, one institution had its is its enrollment is is going down and their budget is directly uh, related to enrollment that's mm-hmm. how they are funded which i find to be a very uh, stressing model for them so they their budgets were cut this one institution's budget was cut and so he he's and he had people leaving so they're kind of scrambling at this point and so i i didn't um you know, they're so they're sort of in a stagnant state. Um, but one university, I'm really happy to say, uh, is getting its feet back on the ground after this whole COVID experience. And they they said they're they're just now in the last month they're dusting off their deployment plan. They're they're getting ready to put it on their priority to do list. And so so um, you know, I'm really happy to hear that. So.
1: Yeah, I think I think COVID changed things for for many organizations, not just higher education, but for certainly in the corporate and enterprise side. And it probably put a pause for a lot of folks just trying to try and figure out what the heck is going on. So it doesn't surprise me at all that that the impacts that you saw for your organization is is, is going to be indicative for the rest of the industry too. And then yeah. I, I I suppose the other lesson for them is how many folks are at home and working on, you know, service services you know provided by mm-hmm. you know. Broadband subscriber services that are are V6 enabled already, so that they have plenty of folks who are probably sitting at home trying to access them with V6, right? Mm-hmm. If, they were, if they were measuring that, they 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 would see that, which is which is great to hear that folks are just doing the basics like getting Cloudflare enabled and making sure students get get to resources and and faculty can get
4: to resources is is a big deal. So that's, yeah, uh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, those students probably pretty likely that their mobile device, their 4G, 5G phones have IPv6 capability. But in order to reach, you know, the bursar's office, the admissions, student information system, online learning, you know, cloud-based learning platforms, if those are all IPv4, that student's going through at least one NAT to reach those. But if those services... Were v6 enabled, the student would likely be using IPv6 to reach those applications uh, natively. Mm-hmm. Their end user experience could be better if yeah, the school had turned on those services with dual protocol at least. Right, that's a hope. That's a hope.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's. I mean, looking back, I mean, how does how did how did your executive staff feel about the the success of the program? Were they happy with the investment? Were they happy with with the end results and, that, and I'm sure you guys are still tracking it. I mean, I know it's not formally like currently mm-hmm. running is like a, you know, actively sort of, you know, doing the training and education part, but I'm sure you guys are still wanting to keep a finger on tracking about what's, what's actually going on for, for member organizations so that you don't lose a little bit of traction of in the investment there. Right.
2: Yeah. So, so, you know, we, when we look at and ask the question, uh, was the program successful, I would say in some ways, yes. And in some ways, no. Um, you know, being honest about it. Mm-hmm. I think it was tremendously successful in its training and even, you know, uh, systems administrators and help desk people uh, up to the execs. You know, the training and the education, I think, was phenomenal. I think that was very successful. We got, we had over 340 people participate in the program. Those were in separate individuals, not just like one person attending eight times something. Right. Right. Th- that was, that was fantastic. So, um, but in terms of what, what I personally expected and was hoping for in terms of adoption moving forward, I think um, we didn't meet that, you know, we, we encouraged, and, and we knew in the beginning we couldn't put, you know, sort of like measurements on that, but um, I had wished that there was there had been more adoption successes. Oh, and not to mention that at one point before uh, things happened, one of our universities, U of M, was going to be expecting um, a presidential debate, and so they put everything on hold, <laughs> and so, and then it didn't <laughs> happen. And so it's like the, these things just came up. But um, if I were to do this over, or if I were to have a follow on program, I think what I would really work on would and I I would be asking again, uh, advisors on this to get a more hands on approach for um, tools, implementation, monitoring Um, you know, get get a more hands-on. Because actually in the beginning of the program, we were thinking that we were going to have um, maybe like a test lab. And when we were developing the curriculum in the program, I I put it out there. I said, how many um, of you folks think you need a test lab? And I didn't get a very overwhelming response. They said, oh, we've got a test lab and oh, we've got this. And and one said, oh, that might be a good idea. Um, So we didn't really put that in place um we you know and in the training that your company provided for us they had hands-on experience and and working some of this so you know i never got that back but now i'm thinking hmm maybe if we actually did something more like that um that could have could have helped people with adoption. It's just hard to say, but I would try that approach if I had a second, if it was like program number two, that's what I would try.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's not an easy thing to to solve through. And adoption takes a long time. That's the other thing is is a time horizon to measure adoption isn't, you know, we finish teaching and, and then they're going to suddenly go turn it on. It just impacts so many areas, as you know, it impacts so many areas of an organization that trying to make sure that you don't make a mistake along the way and make sure that you you account for all the things that need to happen. I mean, to Scott's point, incrementally roll it out, right. And make sure that you're doing the right stuff. So you don't fall, fall on your face. But at the same time, you can't expect, you know, with that approach, you can't expect miracles of overnight turning on all the services. Right. Mm-hmm, right. So it's, so it's a balancing act in both directions, I think.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah. And, the- and- I would love to. Uh, oh, so one of the things that we are going to do, I, I, uh, is, uh, we're considering Merritt, he has a program called moonshot and, um, what it is, it's, uh, I don't want to go into details now, but it's a way of trying to, uh, get uh, broadband internet service into rural communities. And so one of the things we're going to do is, um, we're going to take a survey of, uh, in Michigan of, um, of IPv6 uh, interest and adoption and see and and broadband and who might be uh, doing some real broadband implementation and um, consider that as a part of maybe a Greenfield IPv6. Um, So we're we're looking into that and we've also um, done some support and some NSF uh, workshops for IPv6 and IOT. And so there's there's a little bit of um, residual work in that area, but we, do, we don't have anything um, big planned at this point in time, but we're hoping that uh, we might be able to do something in the future.
1: Um, yeah, you just want sort your of member institutions to turn it
4: on and get going, right? <laughs>
2: yeah, I truly <really> do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But
4: that makes sense. I mean, anytime you're rolling out a greenfield network, a new network, you might as well roll it out with both. Because it probably is only, let's say, 10% more effort to roll out a network with IPv6 on top of IPv4. But if you were to roll out a network with IPv4, then later, two years later, then roll out IPv6 is probably 70% more effort. So you save costs by just building it in right from the beginning.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And now the equipment is ready to go. There's none of the Mm -hmm. legacy concern about, oh, I have to upgrade. My equipment—it's everybody knows it's ready to go right now. Mm-hmm. So that's great.
1: No, that is that is that is awesome. And then yeah, on on a more personal note, I have to say, Lil, it was it's, it's been a tremendous pleasure working with you over the time frame for around the program and everything else. And and we we're I, I know I'm sure for all three of us, we we're super grateful for you. Oh yeah, I definitely second that. Yeah, listening to us and, and saying like, hey, these guys might actually know what they're talking about. So
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I. Well, I do want to say something about your training, and if I can do a final plug here. You know, I spent six months in the beginning of the program in the early 2018 looking at training available. I, I, and I, I sweated over it. I looked at all of the YouTube videos and all of the things by ripe and Aaron and on and on. And, um, you know, I was getting kind of desperate (laughs) and, and I I was talking to somebody who was really capable in developing training programs. And he had a, uh, he had a company and a networking background, but he wasn't a V six expert. And, um, In the middle of 2018, I think, uh, you know, Scott announced at an advisory board meeting that the creation of Hexabuild, and I was like, this is a godsend. I was so (laughs) happy. And so it was really kind of a, uh, I know you guys, you know, are blushing, but it's like, it was a no brainer that um, Merritt would sign up Hexabuild to do all of its training. Because there really, there was nothing out there that was came even close and I, I just felt, um, that you guys had saved the day for me.
1: <laughs> Thank you. We appreciate that. We yeah. try, we try not to mention too much about what we do on the podcast side, but, but yeah, no, we appreciate that. And, yeah. and, 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 and certainly it, it's, um, I think for us, we were really thrilled to be able to come in and, and work with you, with you folks just because we felt like the program you were putting together was going to have so much impact across the state of Michigan. So it was, it was really for us, Uh, Felt very uh, rewarding to be able to come in and and talk to that many people who I I, I certainly felt that way. I'm sure Scott and,
4: and Tom did too.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
4: Yeah. I, I think, you know, Lolo, you were instrumental in coordinating, coordinating everything, getting the advisory board together, getting everyone in the room, making it interesting for them, making it comfortable for everyone, the hospitality, the outreach, the, listening to the members, giving them what they asked for, giving them what they needed, even if they didn't ask for it. Um, and, <laughs> You're right. And, just, and it just took so much effort to coordinate uh IPV6 program of this size. It, it wouldn't have been successful without you, Lola. Uh,
2: sure. Well, thank you. I, it was so, it was, I thought it was so much fun. It was like one of the funnest things I've done in my career. And, um, Scott, remember the ice storm? We we even had a full (laughs) class in an ice storm. Uh, I mean, (laughs) and and so that speaks a lot (laughs) because, you know, the the word got out on the street that Scott's uh, network uh, training class was like top notch. So we uh, there was an ice storm that was going to come in and I called everybody and I said, you know, marital pay for extra hotel nights. So come in before the storm. And we had one of our fullest classes during that ice storm week.
1: <laughs> yeah, they had nowhere to go. They couldn't escape. <laughs> <Right>.
2: <laughs> and so, you know, it's um, it, it was a joy. It was a joy. And we got so many positive reviews on all of the training yours Ed, and and Tom, that that uh, quarterly meeting training you did on address planning. and I mean, that was really one of the big benefits of the program was the training. And um I think everyone really thought that that was you know the highlight. So we're that was that was great.
4: Yeah, I remember that one class. it was it was negative twenty Fahrenheit, you negative know, <laughs> thirty Celsius. And I had that Raspberry Pi with the temperature sensor that was wireless communicating its IPv6 readings back to a server listening on a particular port. And I held the sensor out the window.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was like,
4: yeah, this is a low temperature. And it was
2: like <laughs> right. it was like
4: negative five just right out the window outside the building. I was like, oh um, this cool.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh I was so glad I didn't call it off. I I thought, okay, am I going to be responsible for highway deaths? And, you know, Mm -hmm. but I just gave everyone an option and people showed it was, it was great. And, um, you know, but it was, this was a really fun program and I just uh, I was so grateful to merit that I was uh, chosen to run it. And, um, I think again, it was very successful in awareness and and training. And like I said, several universities, you know, updated their uh, address plans and their deployment plans and started assessing their networks. And so it it you know we we did move the dial.
1: Yeah, that's I, I really feel like you did a, a fantastic job. And if, if if other organizations are are interested in, in in running a similar sort of program, I'll probably. I would encourage them to reach out to you because uh, you you're just your depth of experience of trying to run and put together something as complex as what you did there was was really fantastic. It would be a, a shame if someone doesn't leverage you to, <laughs> uh-huh. to be able to jumpstart what they're doing at another place uh, with, with a similar, similar set of goals. Uh, it was mm-hmm. really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, um, unlike V6, we've run out of space for this podcast. So I mean, many, many thanks to, to, to you, Lola for coming on and, and sort of sharing your experience and, and running and doing this sort of stuff. So how can the audience follow you on the internet? Where, where can they connect with you?
2: Well, they, um, Merit just published a report on the program. Um, and so they can, uh, they can read about the program in two different areas. You can go to the Aaron website, uh, on the Aaron blog and, um, the the report is under merit network ipv6 deployment on the Aaron website and you can also go to merit's website Uh, if you if you google merit uh, ipv6 resources addressing the issue you can get a copy of the report and they can always send me an email and it's just my first name lola l-o-l-a at merit.edu um and be happy to answer questions and uh any information that people would like.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, You can reach the IPv6Buzz podcast on Twitter. We're at IPv6Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at IPv6Tom, Scott is at Scott Hogue, and I'm at eHorley. Thanks for listening to IPv6Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6Buzz. And if you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. And if you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out heavy networking, day to cloud and network break podcasts, plus all the other great technical content over at packetpushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet, the IPv6 internet that is.
0: Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.